0: because the initial idea was that the plantar fascia is like a cable and you just yeah. wind it around the middle tarsal head and it's great it just works that way yeah but it apparently doesn't depending on where you are in the
1: Welcome to another episode of Simply the Best Penitentiary with Jason Augusta and John Osborne. This is a really special episode and we have a special guest. We have biomechanist Anya Verena Belling who's worked around the world looking at foot mechanics and foot function. She's currently doing a PhD here at the University of Queensland and so I spent some time, took some time out and uh, asked her to share with us some of her most recent findings, some of which are yet to be published. I'll apologize in advance for some of the audio quality. There was building going on around us, and there was the occasional interruption, but it ended up with a whole lot of fun and laughter to go with it. So without further ado, we'll get into this interview with Anya Verena Belling, where we discuss looking at footlocking mechanisms, the windlass mechanism, PES planus, and where everything originated from.
0: I am Anya. <laughs> I'm doing a PhD in biomechanics and foot biomechanics, so I'm a foot person. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm looking at how bone shape um, influences bone or joint function. Yep. In across different locomotion tasks, typically we look at walking, running, and hopping. Um, yeah, we look at different medical imaging how we get bone shape and
1: you're function. at which at the moment.
0: I'm at the University of Queensland.
1: Awesome. And now, you've obviously got an accent. Yes. So, um, Not Australian.
0: <laughs>
1: you, can, yeah, you do have a really impressive background. So, um, you've worked with some people that certainly podiatrists are going to know. People like Ben Onig. Ben
0: okay. Um
1: And you've done some pretty impressive work before even getting here. Um,
0: yeah? So have you been looking me up? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they probably are, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I've... Well... My accent is German. <laughs> yeah. Probably very German still. Um, but I lived in Canada for the longest and worked with Ben Onig. That is a big name. A lot of people know him. I've been working a lot on footwear as well as on pronation. That was one of the big topics that Benno kind of pioneered in the 80s. Yep. And coupling between foot and lower leg um, across locomotion tasks, typically again running. Yeah. And worked for a few footwear companies. Who outsourced their projects to the University of Calgary where I was at for a couple of years nice. yeah. cool.
1: so the reason I'm talking to you today mm-hmm. is because I made a bold statement a number of weeks ago and I went the windless mechanisms dead <laughs> now you've got a current paper which has been
0: accepted which is in the last very last stage of like yeah formatting editing kind of um, getting the last bit ready but yeah that's Accepted. It's It's a monster of a paper. It's a monster of a paper. A long (laughs) read. So sit down, make yourself comfortable, and then read it. (laughs) Do not read it while standing up.
1: Get a crochet blanket, get a cup of coffee. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Get a a liter of coffee to get through. But yes, um, it talks about the windlass mechanism as well, among other things. So it's a narrative review on foot mechanisms. What we thought is... Probably still true or not true, based on what people get taught still in probably podiatry school or in college or in university about how the human foot functions, mm-hmm. and there are so many different mechanisms that people thought or still think they're happening. Yep. And the question was for us when we dug into that was like, is that actually true? Is there evidence to it or not? And one of them being the windlass mechanism. Yeah. Um, it gained a lot of momentum in the past years again. Um, Among other, like, classic locking mechanisms, midfoot locking, midtarsal locking, So the
1: midtarsal locking is when it goes from a pronated to supinated state, but it's that idea of being really flexible and being really rigid.
0: So in pronation the idea is the foot is flexible, Yeah. Um, that's typically during mid-stance, the foot absorbs energy, that's during, like, landing, touchdown to mid-stance, you pronate, the foot is all flexible, all loosey-goosey, kind of. um, and then the idea is always that the foot for push-off becomes more rigid yep. or stiffer, which is the terminology is a problem in itself as well that we touch on. Um, and that's the idea when the mid-tarsal joint locks and creates this like rigid platform of a foot where the foot can push off, Off, I guess. Um, the idea behind all of those mechanisms, how we approached it was like all of them have the underlying assumption that the foot is rigid. Yes. So the underlying idea of all of those mechanisms is pretty much the foot seems to be mobile in the beginning of stance and then rigid in the end or stiffer. Okay. So and that is kind of the assumption that all of those mechanisms operate on. And that assumption. So
1: windlass mechanism, locking mechanism, root theory. Root theory in terms of
0: um, we touch on it in terms of when you talk about pronation because how do we know if a foot is in a pronated posture or not? Well, based on the Subtitle neutral, a lot of people are like, yep. well, this is a neutral, everything that deviates from it is either pronation or supination. Okay. For some people. If it comes to foot posture, but then in gait, like we don't really can test whenever the foot is in neutral, so we usually go with standing as a reference position, and that is our neutral, and then the deviation from that is pron-
1: Okay, so then how many, how many theories have you looked at?
0: We started, I think, with 10. Ooh, now you got me.
1: Uh, was there any theories them. that were more interesting than it, or any that were...?
0: Some of them were, I would argue, they're almost like... Yeah, one of them was um, touched on, I think, in the 70s, was the the soft tissue locking theory that we, in the end, kicked out of the paper because it had so little evidence of ever being tested and was just touched on in some papers on the side when people were arguing are there some bony locking mechanisms and oh there might not be. What about the soft tissue, meaning muscles, ligaments, um, tendons? No one is able to explain how muscles are supposed to lock in that sense or tendons, but ligaments, the idea is that they get tawed, depending on the position the bones are in and the joint is in and they kind of catch the range of motion in the end and be like okay this is too much we don't we don't want to go there.
1: There's some logic in that.
0: There's some logic in that. At the same time, how do you test for that when you actually want to test bony constraints? Yeah. And a lot of people simply argued, oh, it probably will be the ligaments without ever testing it. Um, right. And of course, we know across people the ligaments have very different properties, are very differently um, structured in terms of how, if you want to say it, how lax or loose they are compared to how taut they are. Yeah. Um, there was just not really any studies that looked into that so we can only say well this was, was a speculation on some of the papers but we didn't really include it in the actual review because there's simply not enough out there that I've yeah. ever looked into that and there's some mechanisms such as let's go back to the mid locking that has been tested quite a bit in the past um, but at the same time the very original theory from was in the 30s and they argued that there are two axes that converge and diverge depending on the position supination yep. pronation yep. but no one really looked ever in the axis orientations because it was simply not possible at that time and then 30 40 50 years later people still talk about the theory that it might be true mm. but you can still not look into it because how do you determine joint facet axes without either cutting it open and putting implants, like, implanted beads or whatever in there, um, or with bone pins, but then your reference frame, your coordinate system frame of that bone is random, so you don't really know if it aligns with the actual facets of the joint. So you don't really know how the axes are like.
1: So back in podiatry school, we were drawing these axes, and so, What I'm hearing is that we could have been... It's it's hard to be really accurate with those... Very hard. And particularly because it changes so much throughout the gait cycle... Yes. ...that we're basing it on a static foot posture only and a whole lot of assumption as well.
0: Exactly. So you pretty much build your little, like, sandcastle on a bunch of like a like like a shaky foundation, and if you pull out, if we think about it like Jenga, <laughs> yeah. if your foundations are very stable, you can build on the very top and continue, but it might crumble because you don't have the support you need from the get go, based on that theory. And then, we have to say it's a really like neat theory. It's a great idea if it works like this, but we have to make sure that all the assumptions have been tested for and they are correct and then we actually have to test that theory and in the 30s when it was introduced a lot of those theories a lot of the papers when we dug them out like they were based on books and assumptions and cadaveric work and static work that has been manipulated manually which was great at that time fantastic that people did this Yeah, yeah incredible and they did amazing like really really great work about thinking about all of this but then you have to actually test it once you can test it and that hasn't been really done in the past 60 years. And now we finally have medical imaging. You can yeah. get all the facets, you can get all the shapes of the bone, you can get all the motion. We have MRI, we have dynamic CT scans, weight-bearing CT scans, we have biplanar video radiography so we can get x-ray videos. So we can finally do all of that to test those theories because they are still theories. people don't treat them as that and that is one of the big messages in the in our paper that we say it is amazing work that has been done we don't want to discredit any of that
1: no 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 no, because it's
0: really 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 important really good
1: and it's helped get us to this point right absolutely Yeah, yeah
0: but they have to be tested like with the technologies we have now because we finally can test a lot of those theories in like great detail and be like yeah this is what actually is happening or partially potentially we don't really know this is what's not happening. This is what is happening.
1: So, with that in mind, yeah, do you know the? Do you know? Do you have any insight into what those next answers are? Like, ha- what is happening? What's not happening? Do you have any insight into that stuff?
0: If we come back to the windlass mechanism, for example, and you say that one is dead, there is a lot of research now out there where people say it seems to be that the windlass engages in some part of the gate cycle, but not in all of them.
1: Right, okay, wow.
0: So it seems to be, it's not just a thing that happens or doesn't happen, and it's there or not there, but yeah. there are modulations of the windlass. Okay. Um, something like that is super interesting, because the initial idea was that the plantar fascia is like a cable, and you just yeah. wind it around the metatarsal head, and it's great, it just works that way, Yeah. but it apparently doesn't, depending on where you are in the gait cycle.
1: Well, it would ruin my research, because then full muscles <laughs> would be pointless, right? Potentially,
0: yeah. but how, how are muscles influencing all of that? Can they compensate it? Correct. Can they not? Dep- yeah. Does that depend on how the person's plantar fascia is in general? Are they yeah. in pain or not? Like I think there's so many factors and that makes it so interesting and a lot of the ideas They're obviously they're simple. They're simplistic. They ignore certain other factors like muscles um, Great, but that's not how we work. So it's always more complicated And I think our research now finally can get us to a lot of different points. You say you're doing the muscle part on that. Other people still look in the ligaments and in the simple winding like across different stance phases and so on. And I think all of those puzzle pieces in the end give us the hopefully more correct picture.
1: Yeah. yeah. Whether
0: it's the holistic picture, I don't know. (laughs) But at least it's it's a different approach than just getting the theory and being like, yeah, I think that's true.
1: So do you think we will have a th- do you think it'll that the idea of having a single theory is probably unlikely and it'll be a series of nuances across a cycle?
0: I would agree with that. It's probably all in the nuances and in the details. A lot That's of the so cool. theories have been shown that they don't seem to happen. If we think back to windless, there are modulations possible yep. in the theory itself. Um based on if we change the assumptions from like it's a rigid cable the plantar fascia oh it might not be there is some give and take in there so we can change the theory and adapt it if we think about any kind of locking theory such as the metarsal locking or calcaneocuboid cuboid locking the locking always comes from the idea that someone or some some joints are just rigidly locking and you can't move them anymore they're Mm -hmm. immobile that doesn't sound right from a perspective when you think about injuries that if something is locking in that sense it doesn't sound healthy anymore if there is no wiggle room for any adjustment anymore mm. and if two bones are colliding that doesn't sound very healthy either so there must be some kind of It's a very simple way of explaining it. Yep But in a in an injury prevention way there are probably other me- mechanisms in there that prevent that from happening such as ligaments, such as muscles that modulate that movement, and then it can never be rigid in the human body. Not from a engineering perspective, how they define rigidity, that something is literally not moving at all. It never happens in the human body. There's always something moving, something adjusting.
1: And I suppose with thirty three joints in a foot.
0: Yep. And all the there's hundreds there's of pl- muscles and ligaments. There's
1: lots of scope and, and, and yeah. place for movement. Yeah. Um, cuboid, talking of movement. Yes. So, not this paper, this is a different thing.
0: That is, we touched on the calcaneocuboid cuboid locking also in the review paper. Yeah. The cuboid is a, a really interesting bone, the little cube in <laughs> the foot, <laughs> as the name suggests. Um, part of my PhD looks across different joints. We look at the at joints. That also includes the calcaneocuboid. cuboid and one of my last studies now looks in particularly the calcaneo-cuboid interactions. Because there's not a lot of literature out there simply because the lateral foot is something that hasn't gained a ton of attention. Yep. There is the lateral longitudinal arch that some people do talk about, but it's been difficult to measure small bones. We get back to the original problems and challenges of all the foot research. If you have a lot of small bones, a lot of small joints, um, how do you test that or test their motion and measure their motion accurately? If we only, I wanna say only in like quotation marks, have like surface markers or cameras or video that we can just measure everything from the external, or we have to drill um, bone pins into bones and no one really wants that. So (laughs) medical imaging again helps a lot with those questions that we can finally look into the smaller bones the interactions there and what is happening and it's really really interesting to see how the shapes are already changing across people yeah right yeah and it's interesting to see how different people move even though they all of them walk all of them run all of them clearly hop but how they do this how much movement is happening in these joints very different very individual between each person between each person like a fingerprint yeah, yeah. it's like, like a, probably this is where all the <laughs> the spyware comes in. People want to know, like, if you can see someone walking, you can typically tell who they are by their gait. Yeah. And I want to take it one step further. We can probably, at some point, the dream might be based on a bony interaction. It can be like, that is because of this shape. That is because of the person moves that way, because the muscles move that way, because the person engages muscles a different way than... Maybe person A versus person B.
1: That's really cool. So, given what you know now,
0: which is not a lot,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's an incredible amount. If you were to, if you were to try and make it tangible for a clinician, yeah. Okay. Um, what what would what would, you yeah, three minutes, you know, to sort of summarize an entire eight years of work. But how would you try and make it tangible for a clinician?
0: I don't know if it's clinician-specific. One part is, I feel, as a clinician, you have to... You are a researcher at heart a little bit because you have to question yep. where do the theories come from. And that is research. That's what we do every day. We question things. And I think as a clinician, that is a healthy um, approach to yep. your clinical practice. So every theory you ever learned, question it. Um, because it seems to be even if it has been around for 80 years or more than 80 years, chances are things have developed and it might not hold perfectly true. Yep. So be very careful what you learned and how you approach that then. There is merit in a lot of theories, but take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, I guess that's one of the biggest things that I would hope for if I walk into a clinic that the doctors are, or the, the clinicians are not just like, yep, yeah, we've done this always like this and that's why we continue doing it because everything evolves and hopefully improves. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> So that's one of the big things. The other part is it's so highly individual. Um, doing the same for every patient won't work. Will never work and we know this and I think in every single practice we, we keep preaching that but are we actually Don't. doing it? I don't, I don't know, to be honest. I'm not a clinician, so I can't really speak to that side. But I would wish for that it's, it gets more and more individualized, um, and we keep it that way, and we embrace that a lot more. I love that. That, really, yeah.
1: that buys into my biases, so I, I really like it. <laughs> um, as far as foot function goes, yeah. what's something that we probably wouldn't have known? that you can inspire everybody with? What's something that you sort of think, you know what, actually this is something that you wouldn't have otherwise seen, it. you wouldn't know about this, but this is probably a way to consider how the foot moves and how it, how it functions.
0: This goes away from the review paper now a little bit. It is,
1: I'm, I'm, but, I'm stretching you off a bit. Yeah, yeah, no,
0: but absolutely. I think one of the most exciting things that I've been working on the past probably year, was when we were talking about this entire mid-tarsal complex, which is the heel, the talus, um, the navicular, the cuboid, specifically those four hindfoot bones. We do ignore the cuneiforms in the middle right now because they're just really, really tricky. A lot of people were talking about the locking and so on and how it exactly moves. And what we found in our studies was like, it seems to be that the subtalar joint, the joint between the calcaneus, the heel and the talus, seems to be the driving factor of determining motion, everything seems to evolve around this joint and wow. that joint axis. So however we define that, and we did it in a morphological way, meaning that we take the shape of the talus into account, if the shape changes, the joint facets are changing, means the axis of our joints are changing about which they, the bones are moving, and that determines on how we move. So if the morphology of the bone is changing, our kinematics are changing. That is the idea that we have. That is my entire PhD, what it's based on, the idea, but we do see there is a connection. Whether it's you move differently and that's why your bones change shape when you grow, or whether it's the other way around, you move a specific way because your shape of your bones is set up a specific way. I can't answer that part, but that shape in the foot Determines how you move seems to be. So you
1: mentioned sort of the indicator. rear foot complex. Mm-hmm. What about the forefoot complex, or it's just
0: too, too many far bones the right now for <laughs> even a PhD. I think I would need two other PhDs <laughs> to address the other bones. Um, in the beginning, I was thinking about either I go with multiple joints in the foot and just go with like you know go different and and look at all of that a little bit. Yeah. But then I I had so many more questions about some of the joints and I was like. I think I rather want to understand a few joints in more detail instead of yep. all of them a little bit.
1: Do you think it's possible that but the forefoot influence the ref- and the refoot can influence, do you think it's possible that they can just all influence each other?
0: I wouldn't be surprised if it was that way, to be honest, okay. because I don't think every time we look at biomechanics, and if you talk to people what they do, we always look at one specific area typically, yep. like whether that is muscles versus bones okay. or a specific areas of the like foot, shoulder, knee, whatever, but we yep. do know we're one entire like creature. We need all of that to function. You can't like set a human being up for motion without muscles, but also not without bones. You need something you can attach the muscles to, and the tendons and the ligaments. And
1: you need those joints in order to facilitate movement. Absolutely.
0: You need the knees to run, you need the feet to run, you need the toes to run probably. <laughs> Some people argue <laughs> you don't need toes. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but I would say like everything influences everything and that probably makes it so interesting, but also so complicated mm-hmm. in the human body. And I literally I took the hind foot and parts of the midfoot and I ran with it. That's <laughs> but there's so much more. So much more to consider and so many more limitations that I don't even touch on. So I think what I can contribute is maybe, maybe a teeny tiny bit on foot function. But we need a ton of more research being done on that and other people who love muscles, ligaments, cartilage, all the other things, so we can finally understand what's actually going on. Whatever it is, I would love to hear about it.
1: Um, Are you on social media?
0: I am on Twitter. That's pretty much it. I think I still have Facebook. (laughs) I try to get away from anything else um, social media related, so Twitter it is. It's Anya, A-N-J-A, and then B, like... The B's. b double e And then number six, if I remember correctly. C- yeah,
1: yeah. I Anya mean, B, number six. Yeah. A- huge thank you to Anya for her insight. Uh, I can certainly say that uh, working in a desk next to Anya for the last few weeks has been really inspiring, especially hearing about the ways that football, the world of theories and football mechanics is changing and, and, and really opens up my viewpoint about how we believe the foot functions. So a huge thank you. Um, do yourself a favor when the paper comes out grab a large cup of coffee get hold of that paper uh, and have a bit of a read and 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 just get your head around it Um, i'll put a link to this in the show notes in the future episodes when it actually does get published Um, and a huge thank you to listening to everybody that's out there and we look forward to catching up with you all next week